Jesus, I need thee, I need thee every hour. That's a, really a theme of the letters, the messages to the churches in Asia in the opening chapters of Revelation. And this morning we want to look again at Pergamum as we consider. And there's Pergamum. If you have not been with us, a quick look at the seven churches where they're situated in relation to Rome. So you can kind of pick it out mentally. Uh, we are geographically challenged in America. And uh, so sometimes we don't have a, a visualization of where things are when we hear them mentioned. But this is the eastern, uh, pardon me, the western southern part of Turkey across from the heel uh, of uh, Italy. And uh, so this is very much a part of Rome at the time of the letters, of the time, well, everything that takes place in our New Testament, everything we read about in, New, in our New Testament takes place under the emperors of Rome and within the Roman Empire. So these churches are in the Roman Empire. They're in Asia. John's writing to them because, uh, in a sense, Jesus is at war with Rome. And uh, we as Christians are being persecuted, and that's why the emphasis on honor the Lord no matter what. And that song that we just sang was a beautiful intro because that's the way we honor Jesus, is saying, I need you, Jesus. I need you every hour. And then appreciating all the gifts that God gives us. Um, Jared made reference to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians, the opening chapter, the opening of the letter, the first words that Paul uses to address the readers to which he wants to reach out and encourage and draw them deeper into their relationship with Jesus. His first words are, blessed be the Lord who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, where? In Jesus Christ, in Christ. So honor the Lord no matter what. And uh, I want us to Read Revelation 2, 12 through 17. So if you have your New Testament open, whether you have it on a device or in this old-fashioned handheld format, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn around, change course, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, he begins this message with, I know your circumstances. And I wanted to set the situation, because with each, with each message, there's a, a matter of layering as we, we get a little more information, a little bit more information about the situation of all these letters and the condition of the churches and what life is like for them. So, beginning in verse 12, the one who has the two-edged sword says, in effect, I know what's going on. I know your situation. I know what you're going through. And just to put that into perspective, I wanted to read to you just some excerpts, not the whole part, but a governor who was living just some 15 years after the situation of these messages in the, gov- in the neighboring state, so to speak, like the governor in Oregon instead of California, that close to us, he wrote a letter to the emperor about Christians. And uh, we actually have two volumes of this governor's letters uh, having to do with a whole wide range of things. I just hold up one one of those volumes to let you know that uh, these things are available and they become uh, a window on this period of time. And so he writes to the emperor asking about Christians And he says, uh, for the moment, this is the line. In other words, uh, this is the approach that I've taken with the Christians. Uh, With all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians, I have asked them in person if they are Christians. And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. Just let me stop there for a second. This governor, on his own decision and word, 
had, we're, we're reading about something that he did sometime around 111 to 113. We know that's when his governorship was. That means that we had some brothers and sisters in Christ living in that, that area that on his word were led away and put to death. And we don't know their names. There's no record other than this. In other words, there might be a headstone from family, but we know that they weren't even citizens of, of the empire. If they had been, they would have been sent to Rome, and he'll make reference to that. Because if you're a citizen, you have some rights. But summarily, he had some people, just like you and me, on his word, led away to execution. For, he continues, whatever the nature of their admission, I'm convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy, note that, their stubbornness and their unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. Now, he didn't say they were rude, or that they were criminal in any way. He just said they couldn't be moved in their decision. There have been others, similarly fanatical, who are Roman citizens. I have entered them on the list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. Now that I've begun to deal with this problem, as so often happens, the charges are becoming more widespread and increasing. In other words, people are informing. An anonymous pamphlet has been circulated which contains the names of a number of accused persons. Among these, I considered that I should dismiss anyone who denied that they were ever or that they were or ever had been Christians when they had repeated after me a formula of invocation to the gods and had made offerings of wine and incense to your statue, which I had ordered to be brought into court for this purpose along with the images of the gods. So if you can imagine that, you're being tried on the charge of being a Christian, you are punishable because you are a Christian and you maintain that you are Christian. Someone says, you are a Christian and now you stand before the one who holds the power of the emperor, the power of the empire in his hands, so to speak, or in the power of his tongue, and if you're not a, uh, a citizen and you don't recant, you don't deny it, you can be put to death just like that. But if you'll deny it and invoke the gods and Caesar with the tongue and burning of incense, 
Because now, you see, he says for this tribunal or this arraignment, he has a, a statue of the emperor brought in. So there's the emperor. And then the gods, their busts or their statues. And you renounce Christ and you exhibit through word and deed that renunciation by paying homage. You are, in effect, paying allegiance to the emperor and the gods. And you are confessing Caesar is Lord. Jesus is not. He continues, I not only brought your statue in and the images of the gods, furthermore, they had to revile the name of Christ, none of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. Interesting that he perceived that. Others, whose names were given to me by an informer, first admitted the charge of being a Christian and then denied it. They said that they had ceased to be Christians two or more years previously, and some of them even 20 years ago. They all did reverence to your statue and the images of the gods in the, na- in the same way as the others and reviled the name of Christ. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's just like a witness from over 2,000 years ago, literally over 2,000 years ago, speaking to us as he wrote and spoke to Trajan, the emperor at the time. Verses 12 and 13 here now really come to life in the light of the governor's letter, don't you think? Let's listen to these words in verse 12 and 13 again. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him, now remember, him is Jesus Christ. So the words of Jesus Christ, who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet yet you hold or, but contrary to that, right in the midst of the enemy, you hold fast my name really takes on a much greater meaning to hold fast my name, doesn't it? And that you did not deny faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, in other words, in your city, in front of you, or in the presence of the people there where Satan dwells. The right of the sword is what the emperor's power is called. I put it there uh, 
behind me on the projection uh, slide because there is an actual Latin expression that means the right of the sword and what it stands for is the authority of the emperor and as it were with a word to command life or death. He holds that power. It is no accident that Jesus addresses the church at Pergamum, those who hold fast my name, those who do not deny their faith in me, that he who holds or has the two-edged sword. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, I'm the one who really holds the power of life and death. In fact, the gladius, the eus gladii, which is the right of the sword, the gladius is the Roman sword that conquered the world. And it is a two-edged sword, as you see pictured there. This is what we're told in chapter 1 extends from the very mouth of Jesus because his word is like that gladius, a two-edged sword, powerful. And indeed, it wields the power of life and death. We who trust in the truth of his word and live by that know its power in our lives, and we know it by faith. And it's not without witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness. And our lives bear witness. That would be the occasion right now for me to break out into a testimony of my life. Sometimes when facing challenges, it's good to take inventory. But constantly, I see the hand of God in my life, and you can attest to this too, but you see it when you have exercised faith, when you have walked in his truth, when you have been trusting in him, when you've been depending on him. Because then you've been mindful of him. You have a memory of him. Your life is calibrated, you know, in relation to his as you work through those real-life experiences. And in trusting in him, you find a patience because you're not going to maybe do it your way, but you're going to do it his way. Or maybe you find the gumption to say something good and something healing, something that gives vision and hope that's encouraging and constructive to someone else in a situation where you could have easily reacted in a way that brought more destruction than construction. I mean, those are the little things, but that's how we grow in faith, is it not? Isn't that how we see his hand in our lives? And it is that double-edged sword of his truth especially the side of life for us that is so precious. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. 
in verse 13, when he says, you who hold fast my name and deny not your faith in me. What is he saying when he says, you deny not your faith in me? Well, he's saying, you're loyal. You're loyal to me. Isn't that what, what the governor marveled at? He called it stubbornness. He had them executed because they were stubborn. Not because they were criminal. But you see, they define a different kind of criminality. And then we read about Antipas, who dies because of the seat, the throne of Satan. What is the throne of Satan? I know scholars have really come up with several viable options, but I am convinced that it is the seat of the emperor's power, which the governor holds, and is represented in Pergamum by the temple that was built, the first temple to the emperors of Rome that really initiated emperor worship and the whole idea that Caesar is Lord and that the, it, 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 was, it was hand in glove with the patriotism for their country. And that's the truth. But it was grinding up Christians who wouldn't let go. And Antipas was put to death because of it. In fact, these letters are all ministering to the churches under the persecution of Rome. And it is Rome that the writer of Revelation, John, associates with the beasts in Revelation because they are the front, if you will. They are the persona. They are the operative means by which Satan is at war with Jesus Christ and his people. In fact, if you haven't, you should read Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, where Satan is referred to as our adversary and slanderer. In fact, there's a great word in there that has meant a lot to me over the years where we read, he is the accuser of the brethren. I try to remember that when I as a pastor or as just uh, a citizen, I try to remember that I, I do battle but not with flesh and blood. And when there's slander and accusation that's false and a lot of gossip involved, Satan is really the author of that sort of thing. And boy, our country's being torn apart by it. And so are churches. So are people through social media.
I don't think the church should be characterized by that. I don't think I even need to tell you that for you to appreciate that point. We are to not just stand for what is right, but really go beyond that to model what is right in Christ. Law does not legislate morality. The love of Jesus Christ through his grace is what we should be known for. Even should we die in the process, for that is the great witness in the book of Revelation. Read the whole letter, read the whole book. The great witnesses are those who stand and honor Jesus Christ. They are martyrs, and that's the very word witness that's used here. In fact, when um, Antipas is called the faithful witness, that, those words, those exact words, are used of Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus is the faithful witness referred to, the model in chapter 3, verse 14. And here it is Jesus who calls Antipas my faithful witness. Do you know what the word faithful means here? It means loyal. It means loyal. You could translate it loyal. Faithful is good too. But sometimes we hear faithful and it's just that to us sometimes that religious talk, you know. But the word means loyal. And the word witness is the very word, almost letter for letter, for our English word martyr. So when Jesus here calls attention to Antipas and calls him my loyal witness, boy, that's just the highest honor possible that he could give him. They endured outside opposition, but they're also problems on the inside. And he says, I have a few things. Yikes is my... (laughs) response there against you. And uh, we see these in verses uh, 14, 15, and 16. And in verse 14, he mentions Balaam. Balaam uh, is known to us, especially from the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25, and then his name crops up throughout the history of the writings of the, of the Old and New Testament, um, he is kind of the a false prophet above all. You know, he becomes a symbol of false prophets. And so when he calls uh, someone Balaam, as he does here, it's code for someone he's not going to identify by name, but he says, that guy, that Balaam, And then in the next verse, he takes up the fact that um, these are the Nicolaitans that are peddling this false teaching. And the Nicolaitans, just like Balaam, uh, were peddling a deceit, 
that would trick Israel at the time into turning away from God, giving up on God, or being sucked into deception so that they would no longer honor and serve and be true to God. Uh, That's really the story of Balaam because Balak, which is mentioned here, Balak was the Moabite king and when Israel didn't have a nation at that time, they had come out of Egypt and they were wandering and now they were making their way toward the promised land and they came into the land of Moab, Moab and Balak, the king, saw these hordes coming and he says, there's no way we can defeat them face-to-face in hand-to-hand combat, get me Balaam, we'll deceive them and defeat them through deception. And that's basically the tactic of Satan. Satan's not going to come at you head-on. He doesn't need to. In fact, anymore, he's just kind of an armchair quarterback because he has millions of people that have bought completely into his lifestyle, his philosophy, his goals. The issue here is compromise, which sometimes is severest when we're indifferent. And that's why I say I really think the thrust of the message of this for us is honor the Lord. Not to try and avoid something, but to stand for something once again, once again. And to assess our lives against the standard of who it is that speaks to us, who loves us, who has given his life for us, what he offers us, Because I think all too often, the issue of compromise can be about fault-finding. And I see your compromise, but I don't see my own. And we don't need to be known. The world already has enough fault-finders. This is about looking into our own lives. In fact, I do want you to note that Jesus says to the church, he says, you have some among you. Not, this isn't the majority of this church. And then he says, he says, repent or I will come quickly. And he's, in a way, not talking about the second coming at that point. He's talking about coming in some form of judgment. But the important thing he says is, He will come to them, that is, those who don't repent. So there's a lot of positive here, a lot of endorsement of being faithful, being loyal, standing up and trusting the Lord in difficult situations. And that's a real concern because where do we start? I'd like to think that, you know, if... uh, I think I've told you when I was a kid in the 50s, it was the, the Red Scare, the, the Cold War. Man, it was, it was a, a scary time. I remember as a kid it, lying in bed at night wondering if the Russians were going to bust into my room and hold a 
you know, there would be two or three or, or four. They, you know, I'm, I'm a lot to handle at eight. But they would all level their guns at me. But the issue in my mind and heart was they would say, are you a Christian? And whether I would stand up for Jesus Christ. That's still a scary scenario. I don't think one of, any one of us would deny that. But sometimes we need to know that God makes his grace sufficient. He gives us grace in times of challenge and trial. But he gives it incrementally as we step out in faith. I'll bet some of you, maybe all of us, have a story to tell of that nature where we we trusted the Lord, and as we were trusting him, and by trusting him, I'm not saying just believing real hard. I'm saying like Jesus says, love your enemy. So you're trusting him when you're loving your enemy, even if that enemy happens to be a neighbor, a fellow shopper, in the grocery store, or maybe even your spouse on this occasion, because sometimes even those who are closest to us, we oppose like an enemy. And as we step out in faith and try to love them, in Jesus' power, we do discover that he comes along and starts to supply that which we do through faith. And we have a tale to tell of success instead of woe. And there's something that we can even feel deep within us. It's a wholeness of soul, a kind of spiritual exhilaration about knowing that I did it God's way. And we learn from that. And we gain strength from that. And our faith grows from that. And do you know what's actually growing? Christ-likeness. You're becoming a little more like Jesus Christ every time you step out in faith like that. And you trust him. And you use his words and not those words that everybody else would use that you've been encouraged to use that has, have been modeled for you. You get the idea. Think about it. We do that sort of thing right now and keep doing it. And then we do it on that occasion. Even as Jesus said to his first disciples, he said, they'll drag you into court, but don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit will give you what you are to say. Just having that kind of confidence is a part of this great deference and honor that we pay Jesus Christ, he who has the two-edged sword, he who wields the power of life and death, he who speaks to us, says, yeah, you do that. And he says, I will give you the hidden manna. That's in the last verse. And that's a reference 
to all the joys became symbolic. I won't go into the details on this occasion, but it became symbolic and a representation of not only the coming of the Messiah, but the messianic banquet and the life to come. And then he says, he says, uh, I will give you a white stone with a name on it. And it's a name that is a new name. And that's a powerful, powerful thing right there. I think it's like there are many small stones that were used back in that day. Uh, Tokens, votes. But I think most of all, the amulet, which we know so much about from the times, people would wear amulets, and on it would be uh, names, secret names of deities, and they would wear them so that they might avert evil, turn it away. They were very superstitious. Uh, I think this is kind of a reference to that stone. It's white, which is the color of Revelation. And I think the name, although we alone to whom the stone is given will know it, we know it's a new name. New, there are two words for new in Greek. This is the new that is new-fashioned, not old-fashioned. In other words, it's entirely new. It's novel. It's... uh, uh, there's an element of the extraordinary because we've never seen this new before. I mean, this is, this is new, new. This is not one new in a series. This is new as first a prototype, so to speak. And I think it's the name that we will recognize because those who are given this stone are the ones who are loyal to the death. Words have power. When you think, you create, in a sense. Your thoughts have an energy. What you put your mind on is grown in you. The way you think, the things that you think, the things that you've set your mind on throughout the week. If you take inventory of what you tell yourself, because you believe yourself. So that's a powerful word. If you take a little inventory on the kind of words that you tell yourself, the messages that you tell yourself, the things that you think to yourself, how much of it honors Jesus Christ? How much of it strengthens your faith in him? How much of it focuses on his truth? How much of it lifts him up in the midst of difficult times? How much of it exercises your faith? These are the things that we need to be doing to be prepared each day to honor the Lord no matter what. Will you stand with me? After I pray, if you want to...
pray with us, whether to intercede for another or to bring something before the Lord yourself, to pray about a decision that you have made for Jesus Christ, we invite you to come. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your... How do we begin to thank you? We do praise you, Lord, for all of your love and grace and we ask and invite you to encourage us this week to grow in our trust and our loyalty to you. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you.